Hopefully that's an encouragement to you uh, as we think about uh, the faithfulness of God and uh, we look into this uh, coming year and we know he'll be with us again. And so uh, thank you for those that put that video together. We hope it's an encouragement to you. And I hope today's message is as well. This is our last message in the uh, Family Month series, a series that we've entitled The Gospelized Family. And we have been deriving uh, principles for a, a family from our series in Romans. And in particular, where the Apostle Paul in Romans 12:1 takes the vertical gospel of how God makes a sinner righteous and he moves it horizontally and applies it to uh, the relationships in our lives. What difference should the gospel make in our families, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our sibling relationships? Uh, all the messages have flowed in that vein. So we've had the gospelized family. We've talked about the gospelized husband, the gospelized wife. We've talked last week about uh, gospelized harmony in the home. You know, if there is a category in our church who in this series have maybe wondered if, how relevant is this to me, actually, I, I think it's the, it's the person who is the only Christian in their home. Perhaps that's you. You've been listening to this and, and you've thought, you know, I'd, I'd love to gospelize my marriage. I would love to gospelize my parenting, but I'm the only Christian in this relationship. All I can do is gospelize my side of this relationship. What does this mean? How, how do we... How do we gospelize when we are flying solo in our family? And this is what I want to talk about today. Does the Bible have any encouragement for that, uh, that solo Christian in the home? And I'm so glad that uh, the answer to that is definitely yes. And so we're gonna give our attention uh, to this subject here today. And I wanna begin by noting, out, noting something that perhaps uh, you've never thought about, and that is that that Jesus himself had unsaved family. Jesus had unsaved family. I read a very interesting article this week by John Bloom who explores this, but if you look at John 7, chapter, or chapter 7, verse 5, for example, it says this, for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. We would like to think that, uh, you know, if you were close to Jesus, like family close to Jesus, that you would almost automatically have to believe in him because, I mean, he was so amazing, so perfect all the time. Uh, you know, other than the, maybe the siblings, you know, he was that older brother, tough shoes to, uh, to fill, a, a big shadow to walk in. But uh, clearly, it didn't work with Judas, right? And we know that it didn't work at least for a long time with his own, with his own siblings, they didn't believe in him. In fact, Mark 3 tells us at one point his family thought that he had lost his mind. Maybe you have family members like that. Perhaps in your case it's true. But Jesus, Jesus didn't automatically win people over just by being in proximity to him. Now thankfully we get to Acts 1 after the resurrection and there in the upper room are his family members, his mother and other siblings. They are there and by then they, they believe. But this should keep us, I think, from being overly confident and overly depressed in our, in our family. No matter how amazing your Christian life is, your family may or may not turn to Jesus. They may or may not 
believe there's something to uh, what, you, what you confess to them and profess to them. They may not be inspired to believe. And even Jesus' perfect life lived at home in relationship with his family didn't automatically win them uh, to faith. And so we just have to acknowledge that God is sovereign over these things. You can live a wonderful Christian life and it doesn't guarantee that your unsaved husband is ever gonna believe in Christ. Uh, Parents, you can live amazing Christian lives in the home and it's not a guarantee that your children are going to receive Christ as their savior and, and follow Jesus with their life. The point is that we don't save anybody. This is God's business to do the saving. Uh, and to work in their, in their heart. And so I, I, I think that's helpful to realize. Many, of, many people in our church, I know we have many who pray regularly for the prodigal son, the prodigal daughter. And maybe you beat yourself up uh, somehow about uh, how their faith, is, at least at this point, has turned out. Realize that as you pray for those family members that Jesus personally had unsaved family members and he can relate to the anguish that you feel, the care and the concern that you have for your loved ones who you desperately want to spend eternity with and to see them come to faith in Christ. I mean, I would argue that we're very concerned for you know, that unsaved person in, in uh, Europe or in India and we care for them. But personally, as we think about our family members, don't we want all of them to spend eternity with us? And so this is a big, big, a big deal. And many people bear many burdens with this. And so with that said, there are two texts in the New Testament that most directly uh, speak to this. And uh, these are 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 14, and 1 Peter 3, verse 1 and following are specifically addressed to the situation that we're talking about here today. And in both of these, God tells us what to do when we are the only Christian at the dinner table. So I'm gonna begin with 1 Corinthians. Here's what uh, Paul writes. He says this, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. And all he means by that is that uh, he was unaware of any direct teaching of Jesus on the matter, but he now as an apostle is saying, this is, this is my apostolic opinion, not opinion, truth, it's in the Bible, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now let's talk about this. That may sound a little confusing to you. What is he saying here exactly? And if, we, if you later on take a look at the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 7, this is the, the, the longest and the clearest teaching probably in the Bible on the subject of marriage and uh, sex and uh, you know, uh, chastity and uh, divorce and all these things he is addressing in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 7. And in this portion, Paul addresses a very common reality in the, in the New Testament church. And that was that you had uh, a family member who was the only Christian in their, in their family. Now, think back in the story. So the gospel goes across Asia Minor, just like Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. And you read Acts, it's basically the outline 
for the book of Acts, the story of how the gospel goes to the Jews first, and then it's to the Samaritan, Acts 8, and then it's to, you know, to the Gentiles, and then Paul is called as the apostle to the Gentiles, and the rest of Acts is kind of telling the story of him going all these uh, Greco-Roman cities and planting churches, and so that's kind of how the whole thing is laid out. Well, as the gospel goes uh, out here, it's not like you have all of these families that uh, you know, grew up in a Christian home. Or all these people that, you know, their, their uh, grandpa was a Christian or something. You have all first-generation Christians. And inevitably, you had many situations where families would hear the gospel and one would respond and, and many would not. And so there were in the early church then a lot of couples where one family member or one, one the husband or wife was a Christian and the other was not. And so they were wondering, what do we do about this? Like, if I'm married to an unbeliever, he will not receive Christ as a savior. Like, do I, am I, am I kind of punting on the marriage? Am I bolting here? Because is that like reason enough for me to be able to say, okay, I'm out of here. Trust in Jesus or I'm out of here. And so Paul addresses this very common situation in the early church and what he says here is that the believing spouse is to stay in the marriage. That because your spouse isn't a Christian is not a reason to divorce them, essentially. Now, if the unbeliever leaves because he or she sees the, the faith that you have in Jesus and says, hey, I didn't sign up to be married to a Christian. I am not interested in, in this. Paul says, let them go. And the, believer, the believing spouse is not bound under such circumstances. Okay, uh, But if the unbeliever will remain, it is the Christian spouse's responsibility to stay. And why is that, Paul? Verse 13, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the believing wife is made holy because of her husband. And notice even the children here, they would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, there would be a, a way to read this where you would see that and you would think to yourself, oh, so I can, I can like get eternal life because I'm married to a Christian? Is that what that's saying? I am made holy? Or my kids automatically go to heaven if I'm a Christian? And the answer to that would be, of course, no. And how do we know that that's not correct? Because it goes against everything else Paul writes about regarding uh, salvation, that we're not saved because we're in proximity or even in mar uh, marital or family relationships with a Christian. We are only saved by personal faith in Jesus Christ. So God doesn't save a family because of one. Uh, but what he is saying here is that they are made holy in the sense that they are under the profound influence of the gospel because there is a family member there in the home that is living it out. And even those children, what a blessing it is for a, a child to grow up even with one Christian parent where they are exposed to the gospel, they are taught about the gospel, and they can see that Christian life in action. In that sense, they are they are made holy. And so Paul urges these, these Christians married to unbelieving uh, spouses, stay, stay. You, you, have, you never know how your life and, 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 the, and the words that you say might evangelistically, missionally, have an impact 
on the spouse and the children. Your presence and the gospel, or will keep the gospel on his radar and hopefully lead him to believe. And again, the children, also the children, okay? To emphasize again, there are no guarantees with children. I have seen many, many wonderful Christian parents faithfully parent and love the children who reject the gospel. There is no guarantee with, with that as much as I desperately wish that there was. Now, there is an assumption here that Paul is making, and that is that the believing spouse or parent is actively living out their Christian faith in the home. Okay, he's making that assumption. If that Christian spouse doesn't, then the influence is, is, is lost. But the assumption is, is that a Christian uh, in the home would be at least gospelizing their side of the relationship, would at least be gospelizing their parenting doing what they can to influence the family for Jesus Christ. And I wanna say, I praise God for so many in our church who are living with this tension every day. I mean, I, I, I see the believing spouse walking into the church on Sundays, and there they are all alone doing that, bringing the kids all alone doing that. We have many who are in that situation. And I just want you to know what a profound opportunity you have and what a respect you have from us for your sincere desires to be faithful in that calling. I've mentioned before that my two best friends growing up in my life, Matt Hunley, Brian Woodbury, both of them were uh, raised in homes where the, their mom was a faithful Christian and their dad was not. And I personally observed, because oftentimes we would carpool and I would be in the car with them, I would watch Mrs. Hunley, Mrs. Woodbury faithfully, you know, taking those kids to Awana and taking those kids to Sunday school and taking those kids to uh, vacation Bible school and, and youth group and, you know, back and forth, back and forth, hauling them faithfully, caring for them, teaching them, leading them. I watched it with my own two eyes all those years. And their dads weren't hostile to Christianity, they were just disinterested in Christianity, but the mothers were faithful. And the result of that was that both of my friends, not only Christians, but today my friend Matt pastors a church in Albert Lee, Minnesota. He might be preaching a sermon right now, even as I, I do, and my friend Brian is a key leader in a mega church in Minneapolis. Both of their dads died fairly young, and both of them became Christians before they died. So humanly speaking, you look at that and you think, oh, well, how did that happen exactly? Like, how did those men who were disinterested in spiritual things come to be followers of Jesus? It was faithful Christian wives raising faithful Christian kids who prayed all of their life, all the time, that their dad would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And both dads were saved, and both dads are in heaven today, and these families will enjoy eternity with dad because of the faithful walk and life they lived here on earth. And I praise God for that story, and so many others in our church doing that similarly. That is the power of gospelizing your witness in the home. But how do we do that exactly, Pastor Steve? What does that mean? I mean, I'm on board you know, in, the, in the big picture, but what should I actually do 
What are you talking about here? And this is where the second passage, I think, is very helpful in 1 Peter 3. So if you're, uh, you have a Bible, you can turn over to 1 Peter 3. And, uh, and we're jumping in on, in chapter 3, and 1 Peter is one of these books. Context is important no matter what book of the Bible you're studying. But 1 Peter is one of these, I think, where it is especially important to understand what Peter is, is saying. So 1 Peter is written to a group of Christians who are feeling incredibly exiled in the, in the society that they're living in. Okay, they, they, in fact, he calls them aliens and strangers. And that's not so much a geographical exile as it is a spiritual and a moral exile. That's how they felt. They're like, man, I don't fit in here. This culture around me is like going crazy. I wonder if any of us can relate to that uh, right now. Don't we increasingly feel a little strange and alienated in the culture that we're living in? Well, that was the Christians that Peter is, is writing to. And so you get to chapter two, verse 12, and Peter urges uh, these Christians to live such a quality of Christian life that the pagans will mock them for their faith, but they see their life and they got nothing bad to say. He says, live that kind of life in society around you. This is similar to what Jesus said when he said that we are to be salt and light. It's the same, it's the same concept. And then you read through 1 Peter and he begins to then apply that principle to people in different categories of life. And so he, in, in chapter two he talks about uh, uh, those that are, that are under governing authorities. And he says that we are to be good citizens and to submit to those who are in authority over us. He says if you're a slave in the ancient world, you are to, to be respectful and submissive to your, your master. And he points out that even Jesus submitted to those that were in authority over him and, and he gave himself up to his heavenly father in doing so. So you read through all of this, he's applying that principle, and then you get to chapter three, and he says, likewise, wives. <laughs> In fact, let me read it to you here. Okay, so now he's talking about women who are wives married to unbelieving husbands. What are they to do? Like, how do they handle this? This is what he says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be, note now, won over without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Okay, so Christian wife, married to an unbelieving husband, what is she to do? And the principles here, these apply principally no matter what situation you're in. So if you're a husband married to a, to a wife, or if you are a, a uh, Christian and you've got unsaved siblings, or you know, whatever category you're in, the principles here uh, apply across the board. And notice that he begins by talking about the leadership structure in the home. He says, wives be subject to your husband. And this is interesting because it makes clear that even when, uh, even in situations where you have a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, God's will and purpose for marriage transcends even that. Otherwise, the wife could say, I don't need to submit to an unbelieving husband, right? I can dismiss that. Peter says no. Even if he's an unbeliever, 
you are to be uh, in submission to him. And I think this is important because as you think about, uh, you know, you could address this and, and, and say that uh, when, when you don't have a Christian family, now I don't have to operate the way that God's will is for us. That was a terrible sentence, but if you, if you get what I'm saying, you know, you could, you, somebody could say, you know, hey, I'm a child, but my parents aren't Christians, and so therefore I don't need to honor them. I only got to honor Christian parents, or I've only got to be submissive to a Christian husband. And Peter here says, no, all of these principles still, still apply. God's will for the family transcends the individual faith status. And this is, by the way, how a whole family of unbelievers can still have a wonderful family experience, right? They can, they can enjoy family and love each other and have the blessing of what is known as common grace, the grace of God. So to get specific now, what should you do if you're the only Christian in, in your home? What should you do if your family members are not Christians? And here's what Paul says in verse one, that you should seek to win them without words so that you can win them with the word, okay? Win them without words so that you can win them with the word. Again, here's the verse. So that even if some do not obey the word, the word there being the gospel of Jesus, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. They may, they may be won. What does that mean? He is talking here about persuasion, that they, that, that they might be won over to believing themselves. They might actually become Christians. Win them with the gospel, he says. Win them without words. And what Paul is highlighting here is something that is a, it's a psychological truth for human beings. And here's the truth, that our walk speaks louder than our talk. Our walk speaks louder than our, than our talk. Peter is not saying talk is unnecessary because eventually you have to share the, the truths of the gospel, okay? So that's, it's not all walk, no talk, but it is that our walk is going to speak louder than, than our talk. So the principle here is that human, the human beings, we are very keen to hypocrisy, right? So if you're, if you're at work, there's somebody that's a real it's kind of public Christian, they're out there with their Christianity, but then privately you see them cheating the boss and pilfering office supplies or something, you're like, hmm. You know, for being a Christian, he sure doesn't seem to live it out very well. And people are very attuned to those kinds of, of hypocrisy. At the same time, when someone walks their talk, it empowers their talk, and it makes people also go, hmm. When the moral conduct of our life and the kind of loving conduct of our life is consistent with the gospel that we say that we believe, it actually strengthens the talk. Our walk can strengthen our talk. Our walk can undermine our talk, but he's not urging that. He's actually urging them to use their, their, their walk to empower the talk. And in family, this is where it's the hardest because I can fake you out over dinner, but if we're gonna live together for three years, then I can't fake you out anymore. 
and, and family, we know each other, right? We know the skeletons in the closet. We know the bodies buried in the back. Theoretically speaking, hopefully. We, we know the history. We know the story. And it's very hard to fake out your family. And within marriage, it is very hard to fake your spouse. Maybe you can for a little while, okay? Uh, you know, maybe the honeymoon. But you know, by, by about day eight, they're starting to kind of get to know you in a way that they didn't know you before. They're getting to know the real you. And what Peter is urging here is for the Christian spouse to see that not as a bad thing, but as a good thing. That spouse seeing in the day-to-day your walk and talk should be a powerful influence upon the unbelieving spouse regarding the reality of Christianity. And notice the two categories here uh, that he highlights. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Respectful, what's that? That's an attitude. That's an attitude. Conduct, what is that? Those are our actions. Okay, so he's talking in two broad categories. The attitude that we have in the home and then the actual way that we conduct ourselves, the actions that we have in the home. So if you're in a situation where you have unbelieving family members, if you want to win them to Christ, the daily attitude that you display will either enhance what you claim to be true about Jesus or will detract from what you claim to be about uh, Jesus. And again, Peter is not urging us to fake it to make it here. Okay? That's not what he's saying. Hey, just, just you know, do your best. You know, put on a happy face. You don't have to be joyful. Just act joyful because you, know, you want them to come. No, he's not talking about that. We're, in fact, I think that kind of thing is actually detrimental. When we are inauthentic in our family, our family members also see that. Right? He's not urging a fake it to make it. What he is urging is simply authentically living as a Christian in a way that unbelievers simply cannot do. So what specifically, what attitudes would he be getting at here? Servant-heartedness, helpfulness, kindness, care and concern for other people's needs. Now, let me ask you, what does that sound like? Does that not sound like agape Christian love? Normal agape Christian love? I mean, thankfully here, I'm not having to, you know, we don't have to prop this up with some kind of a fakery. No, it is simply allowing your personal faith in Jesus and the natural fruit that it bears in our life to be on display for the unbelieving family member to see it and for that walk to reinforce the talk that you are saying about the difference that Jesus Christ makes in your life. That was the longest sentence I've ever preached right there. I don't know if you followed that. But that's what he's getting at here. 
Again, thankfully, these are just the qualities that a genuine Christian is going to be imperfectly but somewhat displaying in their life. Okay, that's attitude. The other here is conduct. Okay, this is the moral trajectory of our life, our conduct. Again, never perfect. Okay, don't be discouraged here like, oh, I've gotta live a perfect life or my family isn't gonna go to heaven. No, that's not what we're talking about. None of us live a perfect life. We're not talking about perfection here. But there ought to be a substantial moral difference in the life of a Christian versus the life of an unbeliever. Typically, that is the case. And this should be a little unnerving to your family because they knew you before you were a Christian. You used to party with them, hang out with them, do this or that with them, but now you're not so much into those things and it bothers them that you're not. It's a little unnerving to them. It makes them go, hmm, like, why aren't you sort of like doing the thing that we do anymore? And the answer to that is always what? This is part of the difference that Jesus Christ has made in my life, and I'm so glad for it. If they get the idea that the life you're living is a preferable one to the life you were living, they're gonna wonder if perhaps they're not missing out on something. And don't we believe that an unbeliever is missing out on something? Can I get an amen today? Okay. Yes, indeed, you are missing out on so much, and that's where the Christian life uh, lived should create a curiosity and maybe a sense of like, maybe I should check this out because brother, sister, husband, wife seems to be happy that they are a Christian and would be very sad to go back to the way they were when I knew them in the family. You say, well, specifically, what are you talking about with that? Well, how, just start with the Ten Commandments. Okay, just, there's just 10 of them, no big deal, right? Just the 10 commandments, you try to live those out, that ought to be enough for your family to go, <laughs> and it, for it to be unnerving to them, for them to th say, you know, something seems a little different in John's life these days. Have you noticed John seems to be acting a little differently? Well, he got all religious on us. Yeah, I know, <laughs> poor guy. Feel bad for him, but he doesn't seem to be <laughs> That's sad about it. He actually seems kind of joyful about it. You don't suppose maybe there's something to it, do you? No, there can't be anything to it. That's what they say in week three, but year three, they begin to think, maybe there's something to this thing. And it makes them go, hmm. Now you might be listening today, and your whole family are Christians. Like you're in a Christian marriage, for example. And you might be thinking to yourself, you know, I'm so glad my husband is already a Christian because now I'm free to treat him badly. I don't even have to worry about this, so I don't have to worry about my actions and my attitude, my conduct in the, I mean, he's going to heaven, so I'm gonna, you know, I can treat him the way that I want. And you would be wrong. Because what Peter is encouraging here is not some kind of an extraordinary Christianity. He is encouraging a normal Christianity, flawed and imperfect as it is, lived out by the gospelized family member. And I would challenge you, if you're in a marriage where your spouse is a Christian, are you the kind of spouse to that person that if they weren't a Christian, they might wanna be? 
Is the kind of life and the way that you treat him or her in your marriage the kind of life that might actually lead them to faith if they're not already a Christian? Or if your, uh, your uh, siblings are Christians, you might say, ha, now I can really just rag on them and nag on them and dominate them and manipulate them. I can be as passive aggressive as I wanna be, they're going to heaven. Are you the kind of sibling in the way that you treat them that if they weren't a Christian, they might be drawn to being a Christian? So this is a call no matter what your status. And I would say we should all be family members and treat family members in such a way that our walk and our talk shout the gospel in our family. Again, can I get an amen to that, okay? So to be clear, if my spouse wasn't a Christian, would my life make him or her desire to be a Christian? If my brother or sister wasn't a Christian, would my, would my life make them want to be a Christian? A reminder that the gospel is not really good people getting saved by a holy God. The gospel is sinners being saved by grace, through faith, by a holy God. And I would say to you that it is really, it's, it, it's the imperfections, it's the conflicts, it's the health trials, it's the financial struggles, it's the relational issue moments that are actually the ones that speak the gospel most powerfully. Don't look at those things as being like sort of, uh, I don't know, they're periphery. No, these are the moments where the difference that Christ makes shines through the most, or it should. Because Christianity is about Christian love and covenant faithfulness and forgiveness. And so when there is conflict in a family, this is a moment when God's gospel shines the brightest when, as we talked about last week, out comes the gospel eraser. Maybe you're the only one, you're the only, there's only one eraser in the house, and it's you. And everybody else is bitter, and they'll hold a grudge, and they'll, you know. But you know what? As you display that eraser, and you are on your side of the conflict, freely forgiving and expressing uh, that kind of grace, that is itself a powerful witness to the reality of the real gospel, okay? I don't want anybody hearing this like, I gotta live perfectly or my family is not gonna go to heaven. No, it is your imperfection in many ways and the application of grace and the gospel that actually displays the true gospel perhaps the best. Hey, I can just sit on this point here. You might be going, oh, I gotta be Billy Graham. I can't be Billy Graham. I'm not Billy Graham. I'm John Doe and I'm, I'm just you know, a normal dude. I don't think I can do this. No, you can do this. This is God's power at work in you. You can do this. Maybe you're a wife. I'm Jane Doe. You know, I'm not Ruth Graham. I can't be Ruth Graham. I can't be Mary Magdalene. Well, remember, Mary was <laughs> uh, possessed by demons, if you don't remember that part of her story. Certainly not a perfect, perfect story. And that's the point here, is that the gospel is, is God's grace 
to in our failure and in our sin and in the family relationships. There's lots of that. And when we express grace and love, it showcases what we've been telling them all along in the first place, and that is that sinners need the grace of God, and he offers it through Jesus Christ. So capture those like tense moments and, and gospelize them on your side of the relationship and let that gospel shine through. A few weeks ago, there was a woman in our church, I forget which message, gospelized family, gospelized husband, that uh, she, she wrote me an email and she shared her story with me. And, and here's what she wrote me. She said, my marriage had not been good for 29 years, but the last three years I gospelized my wifery. It brought my husband to the Lord. He died 13 years ago, but I know that I'll see him again. And I, I was compelled by that note, and so I, I wrote her back with some questions. And one of the questions I asked her was, if you could go back, what would you do different in the earlier years? And here's what she said. I definitely would have prayed more. I would have been a more loving wife also by loving, I mean kinder and gentler, more attuned to his needs and not so stubborn on my part. I think that the longer I was a Christian reading my Bible, the reality that he might spend eternity in hell was what made me get on my knees more. God changed me and I firmly believe that the change in me is what brought my husband to the Lord. God is so good, he answered those many years of prayers. And I haven't even really mentioned praying for our family members, but certainly continue to pray and pray for your family. I've shared this story before, but it fits so well, I'm just gonna share it again. Early in my time here at Bethel Church, we had this very dear elderly woman, the kind you would never notice her if she walked in uh, to the church. She always kind of sat in the back, very sort of meek, mild, sort of older woman. Uh, I'll say her name is Jan. And... Uh, one day we got a call to the church, and it was from uh, Jan's family members, and they shared that Jan's husband, who was an unbeliever, and I had never even seen him or met him, that he was in the hospital, he was dying of emphysema, and they wondered if I would go and you know, meet with him one last attempt to present the gospel to him. And I said that I would. So I went up to the hospital, I think it was uh, St. Mary's in Hobart, and I went into the room, and, and here's this guy, and I had been warned about him that he was a, kind of a gruff kind of dude and uh, you know, kind of be ready for whatever might happen. So I, I went into the room, and there he is, and he's got this big like Darth Vader mask on, you know, and he's a little bit struggling to breathe. On the other side of the bed is Jan, and she has his hand in hers, and she's rubbing his hand like this. So I walk in and I said, hi, I'm you know, Pastor Steve and Bethel and I was asked, the family asked me to come and to, and to talk with you and I could tell right away by the look on his face, he wasn't real happy to see me. And uh, I, I sat down at the bed next to him and I was trying to a little small talk, you know, sort of break the ice and he looked at me with, uh, with disdain, very abruptly he said to me, Pastor, if you got something to say, say it, because I got a pee. 
It's exactly what he said. Just kind of rah. Well, it kind of ticked me off, honestly. And so I got up off the chair and I got in his face and I pointed my finger at him. And I said, well, let me tell you something. I said, you're about to die. And without Jesus, you're going to hell. And I said, you've denied the gospel your entire life, but you cannot deny it in the life of your wife. And when I was in his face, I thought he was gonna take a swing at me. Like, I could just tell him, just like, like this. But the moment I said his wife, his face, facial features softened, and his head turned, and he looked over at her, and there she is, just you know, rubbing his hand, probably like, oh boy. <laughs> and this is what he said to me. He said, nope, you're right. She's one fine cookie. Now take a moment and think about what that woman had to do for 50 years of marriage for his summary to be, at the end of his life, she's one fine cookie. You talk to me about uh, hauling those kids to Awana, going to church faithfully, all the things she did spiritually in the home all by herself, hauling all the mail spiritually all by herself. Talk to me about the things that she did as a wife for him and with him faithfully for decades. And the net effect, at the end of his life, he couldn't speak evil of Christianity because of the faithful testimony of his wife. And friends, that's what winning unsaved family members without words looks like. And I just want to say, if you're here in person or if you're here online joining right now, maybe you're watching it because your spouse asked you to watch, you need to know something. That for years, when, you're, when your spouse blows out the birthday candles and makes the wish, she wishes that you would come to faith in Christ. And when she puts her head down on the pillow, the last thing she prays is she prays that you would put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have children that are Christians, what they are thinking about and what they are praying for is they are praying that you will come to a point of faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you are watching right now, next to you, your spouse is quietly, his or her heart is beating rapidly as I talk into this camera to you, and you need to know that they are desperately wanting you to trust and to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so what about it? Your spouse is talking the talk and walking the walk and praying like mad that you will see in him or her the gospel and for you to come to faith in Christ. And maybe today, in fact, maybe this moment right now is when all that comes together for you and you repent of your sins as every Christian must and you turn in faith to Jesus Christ and you believe that he died for your sins, that he was resurrected for your eternal life and you become a follower of Jesus Christ today. Nothing would make God happier and nothing would make your spouse happier today than for you to become a Christian. And I call you to do so right now. And just like that day in the hospital bed, you might not like what I'm saying, but you can't deny it in the life of your spouse. 
let his or her testimony speak powerfully to you and become a Christian. Become a Christian today. And that's Family Month 2021. The gospelized family. Let's make the gospel live in our homes.